0: These next couple of weeks in Romans are going to be very, very important weeks. Today is going to be, it'll be a pretty vulnerable message, a bit of a personal message today. In uh, You know, Don and I, we've been going through quite a lot of things right now. I've talked to a lot of you. I know a lot of you guys have also been going through a lot of things today. Today's going to be a bit reflective of that and also kind of reflective of the world right now and a lot of the things that are going on. Uh, And then next week will be a little bit more of a theological message, but they're going to both have kind of the same undertone and the same big point, the big idea. Uh, Next week will be a very important message. For those of you who have been with us um, on this journey, um, a few weeks ago we did a two-part series on Adam and Jesus. Jesus and how Jesus is the new Adam. If you haven't seen those messages or weren't here for them, I, you could go back online and watch those two. Next week is kind of going to be a conclusion to that. I, and having a framework for what leading up to that would probably be very helpful for you. But what we're going to find both this week and next week is that Paul kind of here toward the end of Romans 8, he, he gives us some conclusions to a lot of the groundwork that he laid for us in Romans 5. See, in in Romans 5, he began by talking about suffering and how suffering ultimately produces hope, which he'll then come back to today and explain further. And then he goes under this problem, this issue of the problem of Adam and talking about the problem of Adam, which he'll bring full circle for us uh, in in the passage we study next week. Romans 8 is probably, at least in my view, is probably the most theologically significant chapter in the whole Bible. It's, it's at least one of them, for sure. So that's why we're, we're trying to take it slow enough that we can grasp all the parts of it, or at least the really key issues of it, yet we don't want to live there forever. So what we're going to do today is, today we're going to do uh, verses 16 through 27 of, of, of 8, and then next week we're going to do like the next four verses after that. So this is what it says in Romans 8:16. It says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I didn't pray yet, so let me pray for us. Jesus, uh, Lord, we just ask right now that you'd be evident in this place, that we would make much of you, God, and that, uh, Lord, this would just be a day of healing for people who need healing. This would be a day of empowerment for people who need the power of the Holy Spirit to just fill their lives and empower them for the mission that you've given us, God. God, we pray right now that we would be changed by the word, Father God, that as we, as we study Romans, Lord, that we wouldn't read it through all the lenses that we already view our lives through, uh, and we wouldn't read it saying, oh, I already know what this says, but Lord, we would read it in a way that our lives would be transformed here and now today by this word. And Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place and we ask that, Lord, you would speak through me, that everything that you would have me to say, I would only say that and everything else would fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are a people here, and you guys all know this, you've heard me say this a a million times, but we're a people here that believe that God not only meets us in the broken places of our hearts, we, we believe that he does that, but we don't believe, we believe that he not only meets us there, but he also works through those broken places to bring healing not only to you and not only to me, to bring healing not only to the circumstances that we're facing, but also to others through you. So, a lot of you who are close to my wife and I, uh, or if you've even gotten in close proximity to us in the last little while, in the last few weeks, uh, you've likely felt the weight. That we've been carrying right now kind of in our faith journey and uh, in our marriage and in our family and in our attempts at pastoring and in our attempts at dreaming so big for this community and loving others and trying so hard to be there for everybody and one thing we realized about a couple weeks ago is we kind of hit a wall uh, Don and I did. And our, and our family did. Um, we were we sitting at the reconciliation table, which this event was just unbelievable. For those of you who don't know what the reconciliation table is, it is a 65-foot table that we built. It's a, a dream that God gave us in which uh, we can reconcile the community back to God. And this is a space that we, that we created to do that. And, so, and, and we've had this vision in our hearts for three years to do this. And most of you know all of why we do it and all of the theology around it. But we were sitting at the reconciliation table launch. It was two weeks ago. Most of you were there. And I looked around and my heart was so full because so many people rallied together. It was over 100 people that had rallied together to make this thing happen. Something that we believed was God's heart for a very long time for our community. And at that event, uh, even though it was just meant to be a feast to, for you guys, we really threw it as a party for you, as a banquet to introduce you to kind of the level of meals we're going to serve the community there, the banquets we're going to throw. Even though it was only for you really, we had 9 people from the community just walking by join us for that meal. They just walked up and joined us. It's rare that we see 9 visitors on a Sunday or even a month of Sundays sometimes we don't see 9 visitors. But at that table at one meal we saw 9 visitors. We saw it happen without even telling anybody that we were there or that we were going to do this at all. Um, the entire thing, I, I love this picture of our community. It's just like we were just there. It was this picture of, what, of our community being there for the community. And I, and I love that. It's, it's what we see our community becoming. A body of people who are just completely immersed in our neighborhood and in the lives of our community. And I was really excited, and, and I still am. To see the ways that God's moved and is now continuing to move as we open this kind of public space, like Dom was talking about, for the purpose of reconciling our neighbors, for the purpose of us bringing our own brokenness to the table and finding restoration and reconciliation, and then using that as kind of a, a way to reconcile others. But you know, then we woke up on Monday morning, and I had this sinking feeling in my gut. That even in my own life and in my own family, there was reconciliation that needs to be done. There were things in our own lives that weren't as they should be. And in spite of the fact that so many of our goals had been achieved and so much momentum was forming around this thing that God put in our hearts to do, um, I just felt we felt unfulfilled. We felt unsatisfied. We felt like there's something missing right now. And just to give you guys just a small window into our lives, and I'm not going to go into a lot of details, but uh, Don's grandfather is on what doctors say is his deathbed. Um, they say he probably has about a week left to live. That was that was last week. Uh, he's still alive right now, but they've only given him a few days to live. And and our niece, Don's um, Don's sister's daughter, she's five years old. Her name's Olivia. Please pray for Olivia. She had what seemed to be mono, and it didn't go away and then she got an infection and then her heart just began to fail. And after being in ICU for several weeks, they got her heart to like a more stable place but she keeps landing back in the hospital and landing back in ICU. Uh, We were in Ann Arbor and spent most of the day with them yesterday. And so just recently, the, the family was told that she needs a heart transplant and she's on the heart transplant list and she's five years old. And, um, It's been a roller coaster for us, um, and much more so obviously for her and that family, but that's the next step, and that's the next step for a five-year-old. And when I I actually take the time to process the thought of that, it's heartbreaking. It's absolutely devastating. It's tragic. I can't even keep myself together. But we were kind of just not even dealing with all of these things as we were kind of plugging away with this mission that we have, if that makes sense. We, were, we, we talked about them, we didn't ignore them, but we weren't giving ourselves to the time that it actually takes to feel for them. And that's something that we've been talking about. Like we, we, You've got to feel. And then if you kind of add to that a few kind of relational issues that are going on and things we're facing and then some transitional things that are happening uh, here, uh, we, they've just been weighing on us a little bit. Um, we just sort of got lost in it all. And for us, it was just one of those things where you start to notice things in your own life. You start to notice things in your family, in your marriage, things that are going unchecked and not being worked out, and it's just sort of adding up and adding up and adding up. And at the same time that these things are compounding, and I know some of you have been there before, we're just pushing over here on the side doing something else with this amazing backpack giveaway. You guys know how excited I was about that. I love the fact that it poured, and rained, and we still gave out 633 backpacks to our community because people needed back. They're like, we're going to stay in the—it was kind of wild. I loved it, right? We did the backpack giveaway, and we threw this incredible banquet that was literally the image of the thing that had been in our heads for years and years to do. And we sort of distracted ourselves from some of the things that we needed to work out with other things that were definitely important. But they weren't the most important thing. And this realization hit me just about harder than anything has. That in all honesty, we can work our whole lives to reconcile the whole world and our own world can fall apart. The people who God has given us direct responsibility over could be in shambles at the same time that we're working to restore everybody else's lives. And it's one thing like, I don't mind the suffering. Like, it's one thing if, if we have to suffer because of an effect of the call of God because we follow God and it leads to something like that. Like, I don't mind that. We talked about it in Romans. But it is another thing entirely if it is caused purely by neglect, which is where I found myself a couple weeks ago. And if I'm to be completely honest with my diagnosis of the Church of America, I think it's where the Church of America finds itself today. And I'll say this about myself because I want to be vulnerable with you and I hopefully give you some context of how to apply this to your life and how we can apply this to the church moving forward. But first of all, me, you, any of us, we are not martyrs and we are not heroes if we sacrifice family at the altar of ministry or we sacrifice things that are important at the altar of doing something else that you think is important what you are and what I am is where I'm an off-balanced person who has an off-balanced life in that moment who needs to repent and ask Jesus to do a miracle in my life and in our midst and in what we're doing for all these areas that we've let get out of control. And, and I have done that and I'm doing that right now and my life is kind of this constant state of repentance right now of like we got to get these things right because Jesus is the only hope for the world and he's the only hope for me. But I speak from these circumstances and I wanted to frame that for you with hopes that you will allow me to speak into yours and into the condition of our world right now. See, we as a body, and I'm talking about not Courage Church, I'm talking about the global church, the Catholic church, the church of the universal church, we as a body, we have ignored some pretty significant blows that have come against humanity in general recently. While we've kind of worked toward our own objectives and our own goals and our own, what I would view as sheltered agendas. We've kind of created this world where we think that when a person has fully attained separation from the world and stops doing all of the things that the world does, that's what makes a person a disciple of Jesus. We've kind of created this concept that that's what it looks like. That's what discipleship is to most people. It's teaching people to live apart from the world. Like, if we can get this thing right inside these church walls, inside this context then we're doing it right. But we actually view discipleship completely, almost the opposite of that here. We view discipleship not, as we talked about a few months ago, not creating cookie cutter replicas of unique people. The job of the church is not to like strip you of all of the things that make you unique in order to fit you into a mold that works for us. Discipleship is also not neglecting parts of your life and letting parts of your life get unhealthy so that you can read your Bible more or you can can pray more. A disciple is a person who has experienced wholeness in Jesus Christ, which puts them in a position where they can then be used by Jesus Christ. I don't want you to be just like me. I don't want you to be like me even when I'm at my best. I want you to be the you that you are supposed to be for the world. That's our heart for people. The point of discipleship is finding what's in you, pulling it out, the thing that makes you you, developing your life so that you as a unique individual can be the person who reaches the world in the way that only you can reach it. Discipleship is about first recognizing that you're broken, we are all broken. It's about recognizing that the world is broken. But then also realizing you can be whole in Jesus Christ. You can be part of making the world whole in Jesus. And that process from brokenness all the way to wholeness and purpose and mission, that is the process of discipleship. And what we find time and time again through the scriptures is that God tends to use the times that we want to give up the most. The hard times, the times it feels like we're suffering, sometimes the times that we really are suffering. God wants to use those times to develop us into the people that somebody else needs in order to see Jesus in the way that that person needs to see him. But part of that process is diagnosing the things in you that are preventing you from being who you're supposed to be. And working those things out. Because at at the end of the day, the the church really is the hope of the world. I hope you know that. I know sometimes I feel it sounds like I'm very critical of the church. I actually believe that the church is the only hope that the world has. I believe it's plan A. The only plan I believe it's the plan It's the hope of the world. I think it's going to succeed. That's you and I. The problem is, the church is supposed to be disciples, apprentices of Jesus Christ. And if all the world knows of us is the things that we are against in all honesty, you're not a disciple of Jesus. Jesus never did that. Jesus always met people right where they are in their circumstances. In fact, the people he was most vocally against were the religious people doing the things in the name of God that were turning other people off to God because it killed the mission. Now, I say all that to say this. (laughs) I want this passage in Romans to not be information to you. Next week, we'll do a little bit more information. We'll do a little more theology. I I want this, I want you to hear this, and I want you to apply every stinking word of it to your life. I want you to realize that there are going to be moments in your life when you do not know what to do. The answer is going to be beyond you. It's going to be beyond the counsel that you'll receive. You, You could come to me for counsel, and I may not have the answer for you. And yet there is an answer. And even though we may never find it, sometimes we won't find it, there's always going to be something at the very least that can be developed in you through the circumstances that you're facing. So there's a very specific concept that Paul uses several times in this passage, a word he uses over and over. You likely noticed it when I read it. It's the concept of groaning. To groan is to make a sound of pain or disapproval that doesn't consist of words. It's that, uh, that there are no words moment. It's the, the speechless times when you're, you're literally just stopped, dead in your tracks, and, and, and you need something to change, but you can't quite communicate it or articulate it because you aren't quite sure what can even be done. It's exactly where we found ourselves last week in our own lives. And it's a great portrait for where we find our world right now. In fact, the very first thing that Paul says is, that's groaning, the first thing he says is the world is groaning. All of us are groaning. He says all creation groans. You know, I think just for instance, I'll give you a couple examples. I think of the news yesterday of when Jeffrey Epstein, right, he convicted sex offender involved deeply in the world of human trafficking and the sex trafficking of children, multimillionaire with deep, deep, deep political ties, friends in high places. Somehow, right, he'd been arrested. When he should have been on suicide watch, apparently, right, he apparently killed himself from his prison cell. And dying with him is so much information that could have helped us save so many lives from the worst kind of pain and the worst kind of torment that they're literally just living in right now. And it could have helped us convict and put away so many other people who have gotten away with just pure evil for years and years and years. And what's everybody saying? Give us answers. You can't just get away with that. How does that happen? How does the most high profile person just all of a sudden die with that much information that we need? Give us, how did it happen? It's completely unacceptable. But what can we do? Everyone is just standing there, like the world is standing there right now with our jaws on the floor in disbelief that the world is actually like this, that this could actually happen. I think of the absolute tragedies that have filled our world like last weekend. Two, two mass shootings in one weekend, over 30 people are murdered. I read la, uh, that two countries last week issued travel warnings for citizens traveling to the United States of America. Because of the state of our nation right now. Just a couple of things that were noted in these, in these warnings that these, the governments put out to their people. They said, in America, there's indiscriminate possession of firearms by the population. They said there's the, they, they possess the impossibility of authorities to prevent these situations. They're telling you, they're telling their citizens that if you go to that country, you could be anywhere at any time and somebody could have a gun and the authorities are not equipped to handle it when that happens. If somebody should decide to do something, you're done. And if that is the reality that we're living in right now, then of course all creation would be groaning. Why would we not groan? Because you groan when you have nothing else to say. You groan when you're gripped by fear and you don't know where you can put your hope uruguay's warning specifically told people avoid detroit it didn't even happen in detroit and they're like stay away from detroit right (laughs) we're getting so much better i don't get it (laughs) like it's none of none of this is working right so there there's a there was a false alarm i don't know maybe you saw this i'm going to play you a video in a second there was a false alarm of a shooting in Times square on tuesday a motorcycle backfired and it sounded like gunfire just watch this brief video after two mass shootings, there was absolute pandemonium in Times Square last night and fear it was happening here as well. Well, today, the NYPD is talking about its response last night and what caused this false alarm. CBS 2's Andrea Grimes reports. Pure panic in the crossroads of the world. People running, literally trying to get out of Times Square alive, not realizing this was a huge false alarm. <laughs> Police say what sounded to many in the public like gunfire was actually motorcycles backfiring. Many say the fear is an unfortunate sign of the times. We used to have a motorcycle, and at one point it was like an issue with it. Do you remember when it it would make that sound? It was like this huge, popping, scary sound. It was very alarming. But it does happen. Those are things that happen, right? We know that vehicle's malfunction. But when it happens in this public space, when the world is on such high alert, what you end up with is thousands of people just fleeing. People just scattering in total pandemonia, Absolutely panicked that their life is about to be taken from them by somebody they don't even know for nothing at all that they did. We are living our lives on guard, knowing the world is not as it should be. This is every day something like this happens. But note this about verse 22. It says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, so the pains that the world is experiencing are childbirth pains. now the, the common understanding of this is one that I do hold, so i 'm going to share that with you, but I, I do want to add a few thoughts to it, and because I think it 's bigger than just kind of the common takeaway. The common takeaway is that When you give birth, it's the most excruciating thing you'll ever experience in your entire life, but you're willing to do it, right? For for Forever, women have been willing to do it because at the end of it, the pain goes away eventually and you have the greatest thing in the world. You have a child, right? The most incredible thing imaginable. But the only difference is in this verse, in talking about the world, is I would argue that most of creation, though there is some sort of an expectation that something's to come or something's going to get better, they don't really know what it is. I'm not even sure that most Christians know what it is. But remember, also... Romans, a lot of what Paul does in Romans is a retelling of Genesis. A retelling of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He's constantly going back there. And in Genesis, the cultural mandate, kind of one of the big ideas of Romans, is how we ultimately fulfill the cultural mandate, is be fruitful and multiply. Work the earth, subdue the earth. But when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, something that God said would happen was, now there would be pain in childbirth. So now, just for us to fulfill that portion of the cultural mandate, there's constantly pain. The whole earth is groaning in pain just to move the world forward. It's painful. Again, the world is broken. It's a broken world. All of creation is groaning in such a way that we don't know how to handle the pain that we're feeling. Yet there's an expectation. There's got to be more. 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 And there is more. it says something at the very end of this that a lot of people miss. It says, until now. See, for Paul, there's always this kind of already but not yet mindset. That's kind of a theological term of like, heaven is here now, but heaven is also coming. There's always going to be more. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus came proclaiming it. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. It is at hand. But it's also, there's more coming. And it's easy as Christians To focus on the more that's coming and miss the now. But if you actually read this whole thing, everything I just read to you from earlier when I read all of this passage, the way this progresses is very, very important. In verse 16 and 17, Paul establishes a very important fact. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul tells us that we are the children of God, right? Provided we suffer with him. Then in verse 18, he goes on to say that whatever we may face in this world, whatever suffering may come, that doesn't compare to the glory that's going to be revealed. But then in verse 19, look what it says. Creation waits with longing for the revealing of who? The sons of God. Now hear me out here. Creation. Life people, the world, they're eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. But just two verses earlier, Paul says, you're the sons of God. Paul says, you are children of God now. There's actually a verse in 1 John 3 that says, we are God's children now, but yet even, even though we're his children now, yet what we will be still has yet to appear. So there is that that looming reality. It's here, but it's also coming. God is going to do something in us that will bring to completion and to fullness everything. There's a blessed hope to look forward to. But we cannot just wait until we get to heaven to do that. Yes, that's coming. Yes, more is coming. More is coming in eternity and more is coming in this life. But we are God's children now. And we are the ones that the world is looking for and are eagerly longing for and are groaning for now. We are here to bring the broken world back to wholeness. We are here to disciple the world. To help it find completion. To help it find fullness. To help it figure out what's going on. We we are what the world is literally looking forward to and what they hope for even if they don't know it yet. It's us. It's Jesus But we are ambassadors of Jesus. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says, our staple verse. We are ambassadors of Jesus. It's us. We are the only Jesus that some of these people will ever see. The world is waiting for us to show up and do something that brings restoration and brings hope and brings love and unity. They're waiting for us to respond to the brokenness with the hope that we have. So things are so bad in this world that the whole world is waiting for the church to rise up and be who we're actually supposed to be. And Paul says, you become that provided you first experience suffering. Now I thought about this. And how Romans 5 actually tells us that suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which ultimately produces hope. We did this whole thing on that with the crucible and all that. You can go back and watch it. But I thought about that process of what it looks like to be a person who's actually seen God do something amazing. To be a witness to God, bringing you through something that you know you could never bring yourself through. And what that does to your faith, right? That always, it's a lot easier to, it's a lot easier to face a challenge when you've seen God bring you through the last five, right? But this came much more together when I actually saw it in context of this in Romans 8. And about how God actually leads us through dark moments. Not only to show us that he's faithful and not only to show us that he's bigger than them, but also so we can show the world that there is hope in the darkest places. That we can show them that God was big enough to do it in us, he's big enough to do it in you. Church, how can we minister to a world that knows nothing of wholeness if we know nothing of their brokenness? Notice how it says first that creation groans. Then it says we groan in verse 23. It says we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. It says as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We we groan because we live in the same world that everybody else lives in. We experience the same brokenness that everybody else experiences. It it should break our hearts. It, it, It has to break our hearts to see the state of the world. The only difference is though is we groan but we have hope we have as this puts it the first fruits of the spirit the the first fruit just real quick it was it was the it was the part of the harvest that came forth before the rest of the harvest what would happen in the old testament was that a farmer would take that first fruit he would take it to he take the whole first fruit he would take it to the priest as an offering having faith that the harvest was coming having faith that this is only the beginning this is saying that there's hope in the midst of all this groaning that a harvest is coming and that God is going to do what God said that he would do, what he promised that he would do and what he has done in us today is only the beginning of what he's going to do in our world. Note how it says that we wait eagerly for redemption of our bodies. There's another verse in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 that says Jesus Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection. The resurrection So think about that, okay? First fruits, resurrection. We're the the first fruits of the Spirit here. Jesus was the resurrected first fruit. So what that's saying, meaning basically what happens is Jesus was resurrected as the seed so that now you and I and everybody else can also find that same new life that he found. The resurrection happened while he was still on earth. And after the resurrection, he came and he did a lot of miracles on the earth. It's different than his ascension. His ascension came after all that. He's the first fruit of the resurrection, so now we can be resurrected and we can resurrect the places that are dead right now. Then it says in verse 24, hope that is seen is not hope. If we see it, we already know it's there. We've already experienced it. Notice this correlation. Try to catch this. Try to catch this correlation between groaning and hope. Between not knowing how to respond yet having hope to know that it's not going to be this way forever. And even having a sense that you're actually supposed to be part of ensuring it doesn't stay this way forever. This is really heavy on my heart. And again, I I love the church. I don't want to be critical of the church. I believe in the church. But I, I think most Christians, most of us have grown content going to church. Going to church. Most of us have grown content sitting in a room like this while the rest of the world burns. And that's why we don't speak up when bad things happen. We as a body behave just like, quite frankly, like I behaved as we went through life focused on the thing that was right in front of us, focused on building this thing, and ignoring the fact that all these other things are really not very healthy and they're falling apart. As if we can find healing in one area by succeeding in another area, and that is just not the way that the world works, it's not the way life works. If the world is falling apart and the church stands by and does nothing because we have a cool service, we have a cool experience, where we all feel good about ourselves, but we don't actually contribute to anything's project, progress, then I'm telling you, the church has failed. And we need to ask ourselves this question Have we failed? Have we failed? It's not too late. But any time that we can proclaim something with our mouths or we can proclaim something even with our lifestyle that something has to change in somebody else but we ourselves not be willing to give up our own rights or give up our own comforts or our own security in order for that thing to change, then church, we're part of the problem. Or like I said, we are the problem. Suffering like Jesus, in our context, in a Americanized Christian context, it does not mean, it cannot mean we fight for the things that we think that we deserve as Christians or things that we are entitled to as Americans. It cannot mean that. And we can't get upset when something's taken away to us that we think is owed to us. Suffering like Jesus means we lay down the things that we hold sacred so that others can experience hope in a world where they can't find hope anywhere else. And we can offer it to them because we've been through the crucible, because we've been through that process, because we've seen the way that Jesus has lifted us through the moments when we just cannot carry ourselves. And my challenge to you today is to think about whether your gospel is about you or if your gospel is about bringing wholeness to a broken world. Is the gospel just true so you can have the life that you want? Is that why it exists? Is that why it's there? Or is the gospel true so that God can restore the world to the way that he intended it to be and the way that he created it to be? And if you believe that it is the latter, then what are you doing to be part of restoring the world? The gospel is not comfortable. And if we truly believe that, just quite frankly, we can't just say nothing about innocent people being murdered on a routine trip to Walmart. We can't say, oh, that's sad, but it happens. Can't do it. We can't just say nothing and do nothing as the people who literally live in the houses on our streets, literally on this very street, in this very neighborhood, are having their families split apart by unjust laws that are making these kind of broad blanket statements against families. And if you handle these things case by case by case and you handle them with grace and with compassion, we'd see a very different outcome. One of, somebody from our church is a teacher who, who teaches here in Southwest in one of the public schools. And he was saying that over there at the school, they write more character reference letters to prevent parents of students from being deported than they do letters of college recommendations. And I, I love that people are on the ground doing the groundwork, fighting for families, standing up for people, but at some point we need to collectively realize that the world's not going to change unless we do. And character references are really good and in some instances maybe it's the only hope for a family staying together but ultimately we need to come to a day when families are not worried about being forced apart and they can focus on things like working toward going to college because they don't have to worry about who's going to knock on their door when they get home tonight. It's great to pray for the victims of these awful mass shootings but at some point we need to wake up to the reality That the world is not intended to be this way, the world is not supposed to be this way, and we need to do something to work toward solving it. This is, the world is on that path of Romans 1, this path of destruction. It's the way of Cain. It's the way that has removed God and replaced him with all these things that if the world keeps going this way, we just don't have a world anymore. It's like what Martin Luther King Jr. said. He's talking about the Good Samaritan story. Maybe you've you've heard this before. He he acknowledges first, of course, we we love this story. We all want to be a Good Samaritan. Anytime you get a chance to help somebody, help that person. Such an influential story that's led to so many great examples of people doing the right thing by somebody else. But then Martin Luther King said this. It's very profound and it still rings true today. He says, you know what? I am tired of seeing people battered and bruised and bloody injured and jumped on, along the Jericho roads of life. This road is dangerous. I don't want to pick anyone else up along the Jericho road. I want to fix the Jericho road. I want to pave the Jericho road and add street lights to the Jericho road and make the Jericho road safe for passage by everybody. What do we do? What can we do? I don't know. Gosh, I I wish I could tell you how to rebuild the road. I would say it's likely that it's gonna happen very slowly. It's gonna have to be a slow build. It's gonna be a little bit at a time. It's gonna be one street light at a time. In Detroit, one pothole at a time, whatever it looks like. It'll happen by not growing weary of doing good but trusting that there is a kairos, there is a harvest, there is a time that's coming. It'll happen by not being afraid to speak up against the systems that are built to oppress people, that are fueled by this body of sin that Paul talks about in Romans 6. It's literally a body, it's an entity, it's a force to be reckoned with that just shows us the world is not as it should be, but Jesus Christ brought that body to nothing and he'll do it again, and he'll do it again if we fight for it. And you all know me, Okay, most of you in this place know me. I refuse to tell you the spiritual thing to do if there is first a practical step that you're not taking. And seeking out that practical step is part of the way that you and I live the gospel in our broken world. But we cannot ignore the very last thing that Paul says about groaning. It says creation groans. It says likewise we groan. And then finally it says the spirit groans. The spirit groans. Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't think we need to get into the theology of this entire concept. We've done entire teachings on this before, but this is that part that matters when you're faced with something so big like fixing the Jericho Road, like helping solve a problem like human trafficking, or racism, or the mass killings of innocent people, or the the unborn or the rebuilding of a city like Detroit, or the problem of homelessness, or the amount of kids that are in the foster care system with nobody to parent them, and nobody to take care of them, and nobody to look out for them. This is for the moments when you know the practical thing that you can do. You know that one step that maybe you can do. But it would take a million steps to get to the bottom of it. It's for the moments when your five-year-old niece is in ICU she needs a heart transplant and there's not a single thing that you can do besides show up and be there and tell her you love her you know a lot of people many people are very critical of the concept of speaking in tongues because like so many things I think we miss the point of it we make it about the wrong things and I'm not even saying that this passage specifically for sure is about that tons of different debate about that tons of argument about that but I will say that there's something that God wants to do in our world through us. There's some, and it's bigger than we are. And it's something that you could cl- take complete solitude and lock yourself in a room and stare at empty walls and spend your entire life focused, all your mental energy trying to come up with a solution, and you still will not find it. Yet in those moments when there is no solution, we know that God has the solution. We know that the Holy Spirit has something to deposit into us. And when we don't know how to pray, When we don't know how we should help lead people and how we can lead, how we can help, what we should do to help. When we don't know how to rebuild that entire Jericho Road because we're sick and we're tired of seeing our neighbors get beat up every time that they walk on it. And when our own families feel like they're falling apart. And when our hearts are so broken and we feel so alone. And when all we can think to do is just wait. And we keep living our lives thinking, God, did you abandon me? Where are you? Where are you? When you don't know how to pray, the Spirit will do it for you, however that looks. And he will do it with groanings too deep for words, praying exactly as we ought to. Because if we try and do it ourselves, we're not going to know what to pray. I think that's why Paul says in Corinthians, he says, "I I wish everybody spoke in tongues because it's the same kind, it's the same idea because we don't know how to pray just like we don't know what to do with our world it's super jacked up we don't know what to do but when we invite the Holy Spirit into our prayer life in these moments He does know what to do He knows how to pray and I believe that He will download into you what you can do to help bring the kingdom of heaven to earth now you gotta listen you gotta listen to Him we don't just let the Spirit affirm in us that, hey, everything's going to be okay. We listen, and then we act on what the Spirit speaks to us. And when He does, we do whatever He says. We just do it. And then we're a part of healing the world. If the Spirit says, stand up for that person, stand up for them. If the Spirit says, turn left, drive four blocks, pull into a 7-Eleven, go get a Slurpee, stand on your head while you drink it. Do it. If the Spirit says, give something to that person, that person who asks, get out your wall and give to him. Do it. If you recognize that something is so broken and you cannot get it out of your head and it breaks your heart, it's probably something that God wants you to have a hand in bringing restoration to. But you got to listen. Sometimes, you got to do the things you're prompted to do. And the more you respond, the more you will learn how to move when the Spirit is speaking to you. Even looking back on Romans 5, this process of how, what, how do you get to hope? It takes, it takes you through this process of suffering, and then you get perseverance, and then you get character, and then you get hope. But then it says hope does not disappoint because God's love is poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. If you want to rebuild the entire road, you've got to realize you cannot do it without the Spirit of God. Let me tell you from experience. When you go after the big ones, when you go after the things that really matter, the things that are really going to bring change, when your Christianity is not content simply going to church, you're going to have a target on your back. You're going to be attacked. There's going to be spiritual attacks, there will be attacks on your family. There'll be attacks on your mind. You'll find out real quick who your friends are. Please do not take on the world without first partnering with the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. It'll crush you. But I promise you that God wants justice even more than you do. I promise you he does. God wants justice even more than you do. The reason I believe that Jesus tell us that we'll do even greater things than he did in his lifetime it's because there's so many of us now to mobilize and yet we have that same Holy Spirit that he operated within now operating within us and we cannot ignore that spirit when he prompts us because in him is every solution to every problem church Jesus wants to change the world through you and through the person who will do what he says to do. Will you